In this podcast, we explore corporate human rights abuses and accountability. We do it through a conversation with those who have devoted their lives to protecting and defending the rights of others. Uh, we ask them what they are working on and why they chose to pursue this fight against corporate injustice and how they continue to do it. You know, I was watching The Matrix last night and I think this, the original Matrix, you know, and this idea that we're all sort of, we li we're living in a pre-programmed, we're programmed and, you know, we're, we're living, we're predicted, we're following through with predictable actions and predictable, predictable reactions and nobody's rocking the boat. And sometimes I kept thinking about actually our broader society and let's say we talk about here like supply chains you know and the issue about clean energy you know i think that actually we can do things differently and i think if we start thinking outside the box and i think for me that's part of why i want to do this work well companies have become better at uh, at uh, dressing up these issues but they still are um, uh, stuck in the 1970s sentence by Freeman of the uh, social responsibility of a company is to make profit and this is still all these years later the the underlying um, uh, way they I think still address these problems okay so last time we stopped our conversation at the topic of clean energy and today Seema Joshi would be shedding some light on this issue because she is the best person to talk about this. Uh, she has been an independent corporate accountability expert with 20 years of professional experience working globally in law, policy and human rights and uh, she was until recently a program director of global thematic issues at Amnesty International. For many years also, she's worked as a head of business and human rights. She led the organization's investigation and advocacy work on corporate accountability. Her areas of specialization include combat combating abuses in global supply chain, environmental justice, and corporate crime. She's a Canadian lawyer, and uh, we have heard a lot about her initial journey so if you haven't please go back and check our pilot episode now question is that what is at the backdrop of this clean energy revolutions and let's find out there are probably some facts which we might have not considered some issues and abuses which are going on let's find out Okay, here we are. Welcome, everyone. So good to see you again. Thank you, Olga. Thank you so much. Thank you, Olga. Uh, Raza, nice to be here today. Thank you very much. Look forward to our discussion. Perfect. Yes, we thought this was an important topic um, following up our discussion last time because, um, well, we have the privilege of having Seema, which is um, one of the leading experts in um, uh, how to regulate uh, the new um, growth of um, of ethical batteries? Oh, sorry, of electric bat batteries. And, um, and then uh, we thought it was this is an important topic that we all need to explore because we are, as Rasa said, 
sleepwalking into a whole new uh, way in which uh, our um, power and the economy is going to function. So Sima, tell us a little bit about what what is um, clean energy or what is an, an ethical battery that pr- that powers this clean energy? Yeah, I think first, you know, you need to acknowledge one one sort of aspect. So the first part to aspect is is the dire need for for governments, companies, consumers to take action in relation to climate change, right? So or the climate crisis, which is basically happening to us. And I think that um, this is the connection to green, clean energy, because we know at this moment in time, this transition away from fossil fuels, you know, and into a world, an industry that is actually powered otherwise is, is more important than ever. So this term green, clean energy has been coined. And, and I would um, I would dare say it's been coined by industry. And essentially, you know, what is meant by that term is that we are offering alternatives uh, that are better when you look at a carbon fit- footprint or you look at other sort of negative chemical impacts uh, on the atmosphere. Um, and the implication there is that if you reduce these, uh, it is a step towards achieving these targets of, let's say, 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, in terms of the target which has been set for avoiding uh, a catastrophe you know, with respect to climate. Um, so the work that we have done or I've done specifically, uh, and you mentioned this ethical battery, um, is really looking at, well, um, how true is it? I mean, how true is it if, if um, an automobile company um, uh, such as all of the brands that we know, whether it's, I'm going to dare say some, <laughs> is BMW, uh, VW or um, Mercedes, you know, um, Tesla, you know, when they are basically selling us cars uh, that are electric vehicles, uh, often what they're saying is that this is a green, clean option, because instead of a diesel or a petroleum car, what you're getting is is one that operates on an electric battery. Mm -hmm. In a way, they're selling us more than the car. They're selling us um, you know, a little bit of our own um, ideal of what kind of consumer we are and what kind of contribution we're doing to um, something that uh, most of us are, are very aware of and, and concerned with. So they're selling us a solution without us really knowing what this solution is. Somebody's just providing it on a plate. Yeah, exactly. And I think what we are, have realized in our in research and investigations that have been done by groups such as Amnesty International, as well as a number of um, investigative journalists, is that actually when you look at, let's say, even the battery itself, I mean, is it actually clean? So and there's two ways to look at that. So one which is often overlooked is from a human rights perspective. So what is the actual human impact of actually creating the battery? And the other is from the environmental perspective, right, Mm -hmm. from the carbon footprint, let's say, in the manufacturing. So um, what we have been, you know, involved in doing is, you know, disclosing research investigations that actually have have found that there actually are children, adults, for example, with cobalt, uh, you know, which who have been mining cobalt in very serious um, and dangerous conditions uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's been quite, you know, highly reported now by other, by many sources. Um, you know, what we see is that when you do research and documenting the abuses, you actually, we actually also did additional research. You know, when I was at Amnesty International, connecting the cobalt to all of the major 
uh, brands, you know, so if we look at the electric vehicle brands, we look at even the electronics brands. I mean, the cobalt is going into these lithium ion batteries, which are necessary at this point in time to create, you know, these products. Uh, it's what they run on. Um, so just from the human rights perspective, you know, if someone is saying that, well, the electric vehicle is clean, well, actually, there are serious human rights abuses that have gone into creating that battery. And that's even just looking at one mineral, cobalt. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as as you know, Olga, there are at least five key minerals that go into creating, you know, a, a lithium ion battery. So the question that we should be asking industry and we should be asking governments to actually require industry to be more public on this. Well, what steps are they actually taking to ensure that the human rights abuses in their supply chains are actually being identified, prevented, addressed? I think um, one important thing in terms of the consumer as well is this understanding of the concept of what is the supply chain. Because when we uh, talk about you know, your supply chain is not clean or a cobalt is part of the supply chain of the car that you might be thinking of buying because it's actually uh, your contribution to um, a better environment and a better world. What is the supply chain? Why? How is that your own supply chain as a consumer? And I think this is we're failing this generally to um, explain how the supply chain works and how the supply chain is connected to us, to this um, uh, both uh, factual and emotional link between the people who are mining the cobalt in the DRC and our uh, lovely, wonderful electric vehicle sitting at the end uh, of our driveway, for those of you who are lucky to have a driveway, um, it's, um, it's a different it, or is it in, it's an obstacle when we talk about human rights in the supply chain or human rights uh, and regarding um, uh, clean energy options? Okay, so uh, there are two main aspects, which is about we do care about environment and that's why, you know, we're looking into, yes, it's a good alternative, but then, Olga, as you are mentioning, that there is serious human right abuse. Uh, but I just wanted to make... One one comparison is that how important is it for our society to actually use electric batteries? I mean, even that uh, alternative, do you think it's really important? If it is, how do you, how entrenched do you think is this product? Because it's in our phone, it's in everything we are doing right now. So, which means that it's a very serious issue if the main mineral which is coming into the product, which is everywhere in our society has uh, very direct human uh, right issues. Yeah, I mean, the, the demand for cobalt, for example, you know, there's a lot of statistics showing how it's exponentially grown over the last, you know, even five years, you know. Um, and so that basically suggests that, you know, the demand is driven by electronics. So our lost for our iPhones or our Samsung phones or, you know, our laptops our iPads, you know, so that is a large market, you know, for where these elect these lithium ion batteries are going. And then now what we see is that because of the projected increase in electric vehicles, the demand is even higher. So projections show the demand, the supply actually for cobalt, that is, is, is less than the demand, you know, for what would be required at today's rate, let's say, for for to meet the consumption needs for these products. And then, of course, in addition to that, you have these electrical 
sort of storage batteries, you know, that some, you know, we, the predictions are that there could be a time when all of us, you know, we actually even use our car battery as a source of electricity or as a source of energy in our homes. So we are living in a, in a changing world. So the lithium ion battery is very important. We can see that the demand is high. I think that what we should challenge is, is really think at this totally differently. And, and, you know, in my view, you know, we should be challenging actually our consumption, you know, when consumption is being mapped out and when exponential growth is being mapped out by industry, there's already a bias in that because what they're basically assuming is that, you know, consumption will, will match at a rate that has actually been happening. But I mean, don't we also, you know, as consumers, you know, can't we question how we consume like our rate of consumption for these products? Uh, and you see more of that happening now. We used to get, I used to get a new phone every two years when my contract said you can have a new upgrade. You know, now I don't. You know, I hold on to the phone for five years. You know, I spoke with someone at Fairphone, for example, who was taking the phone apart saying, actually, Seema, you could keep this phone for 10 years if you could replace the parts in the phone. So it even makes you realize that the product you buy, its ability to have a longer life, to be continued to be in use is a key demand that actually is a consumer base we could be pushing for and that could be regulated as well yeah and i think um I th we've we've talked about this before but to what extent we're putting the pressure in the consumer is something that worries me it's something that worries me that we are asking the consumer which is the you know in your regular everyday life to have so many constraints regarding your own behavior or so many demands on changing your own behavior when we should be focusing on those who can actually make a difference and those who can actually make a difference are um, uh, corporations, multinational corporations, and governments and industry associations, etc. This this is a, a issue that needs to be regulated, rather than us making uh, or us who are more aware of the issues making consumers feel guilty for wanting a new phone. Because among other things, this is what uh, we're being fed into wanting, wanting a new phone, wanting a new dress, wanting um, uh, to re-bump your house, something like that. So um, the way the electric batteries are produced, are marketed and then recycled, and this is an important issue that you've worked on as well, is, I think, the focus that we should have. And this doesn't take away from, you know, use a recyclable um, coffee cup, please. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that it's multifaceted and an ethical battery, in my view, should be required by industry to produce. So that should be regulated. OK, so uh, this is actually very interesting because. OK, so clean energy is something which m industry has sold us that, OK, it's really clean. Please, you know, buy this kind of products, electric cars, mobile phones. And you mentioned that there's a serious human abuse going on. So are we willing to consider as individuals that how much clean it is if there are child miners and there is a, a, a domestic mining going on in some part of the Congo, would it be possible to describe a bit more to actually go into the detail of what kind of abuse goes on? Because if I'm correct, uh, you did a lot of research over there also into finding out a very specific uh, chain of supply that how it 
ends to these individuals living over there? Yeah, so in the Democratic Republic of Congo, I mean, there are children as young as seven that essentially are are found engaging in in uh, the sort of the mining of the cobalt ore, right? And uh, you know, in these areas, um, you know, you can either do you can either build a shaft underground because cobalt actually can occur like further in the earth. So there are people as well that you know when they were re- interviewed spoke about how they would go through the kitchen floor to to try to mine downwards and create shafts so they can hit like a stream, you know, of cobalt. Uh, and in addition to that, you have you know children. You'll say at the surface working and picking through the rocks and getting the cobalt. You have women engaged in this industry. Um, it's an informal industry as well as a formal industry. So you have basically large scale operations, you know, that are connected to multinationals and sort of individuals. I mean, the point is, this is a part of the world where people are poor. You know, there is not a lot of there are not a lot of options to basically be making money and for employment. Uh, it's natural that people will engage in any type of industry or work where they can be paid. And of course, the pay is 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 nothing, and particularly for children. And then you also have, um, you know, records of children being abused in these areas as well. Uh, and it's physically abused, you know, from people who are, you know, running, you know, sort of these, you know, <laughs> mining areas themselves. Um, I mean, one thing I I did want to say is that because over approximately 60% of the world's supply of cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, that's why you can't actually, many companies don't deny the fact that their cobalt actually comes from there because it's so high. You know, some projections say 70%. There's so no we way act- to produce one of these batteries without having some, some kind of your metals mm. coming from there. Yeah. And, you know, I've had some discussions, let's say, Norway, when I was there for this uh, electric vehicles conference, where many companies are saying, well, we're now going to create a battery that doesn't have cobalt. So mm-hmm. we're going to create a lithium ion battery that doesn't have cobalt. So, you know, Amnesty International, you can relax. You know, mm-hmm. we're not going to have any more exposés on these, you know, seven-year-old children. And cobalt, of course, is inherently hazardous as, as a substance, as a chemical itself, right? Mm-hmm. So if you were in an industrialized area, you would have some protections, even mining it, and there is no equipment, you know, where, where you know, some of these people are working. And and for me, the response is, you know, cobalt just demonstrates the, 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 the issue at hand here. But, I mean, human rights abuses and environmental abuses linked with mining is not a new issue, particularly with large-scale mining. What is the sadness of all this is the fact that industry still does not act responsibly. You know, often in these areas, they're not even abiding by local laws that exist. You know, and definitely at an international level, if we look at it, uh, there's so much guidance, you know, for this international supply chains, you know, from, for example, high risk and conflict affected areas. And there's a narrative, there's a disconnect. Companies are saying they're acting responsibly, yet when there's investigations and research, we see that there are human rights abuses that are occurring that have not been remediated. There's environmental impacts that have not been addressed. Um, you know, this this to me is the real tragedy of it. So when we look at creating a battery, what we should be demanding is full transparency from where the actual minerals are coming from, you know, what steps have actually been taken to identify, prevent, address human rights and environmental abuses linked to all of the minerals, as far as I'm concerned, that go into the battery on the sort of ex, um, when you're getting at the extraction part. But it doesn't stop there. An ethical battery means that there have been proactive steps taken by the companies to address human rights, environmental impacts and manufacturing 
you know, as well as considerations into how the products that they're creating, you know, how the battery is being designed, its, it's, pro its likelihood for recyclability, reuse. You know, these are, you know, we should actually be able to see these things. You know, I agree that the responsibility is should not be on the consumer itself. But I fear that we live in a world that, you know, consumers feel powerless. And, and I think that that's also I'm trying to push back against that, because as a consumer, if we are used to seeing more of the risks associated with our products, which are created globally, we'll start to demand it more. And that's what creates a demand for legislation, for regulation, for companies to be held to account. I think, um, yeah, I agree, obviously, that this uh, feeling of uh, of uh, this empowerment that the consumer has is like, oh, sometimes I talk about, uh, you know, this like overwhelmed of information and demand and the consumer and overwhelmed of, let me tell you, another problem that you need to solve while you're you're um, purchasing the next thing but um so you know i totally agree with that and i i think you've hit the nail in the head with the concept of transparency this is to for uh, for every stakeholder at every level to be able to understand and to know what's going on. So transparency to the consumer and the general public, but also transparency to the workers that, and, and the people involved about what are the risks. In a way, as a consumer, I don't need to know specifically how much uh, of a, of a, uh, a specific chemi uh, chemical has been used in one side of the chain but the worker does and as um, as uh, then transparency to the regulator transparency to the public buyer as well but it, and i go back to a strong concern that i have about transparency and about how the corporate capture of the word and the concept of transparency corporations do manage uh, most of the information they hold it and they want us they release it into what's on their own interest. So if a corporate now the uh, having an ethical battery or a clean battery is is a, a happy concept for them because it makes them more competitive with regards to others. But what part of that this being a uh, clean battery is actually the the uh, real part and what's part is obscured by them being able to hold the information and release it as they yeah. please or want. So I think we'll hit always this point of that how powerful the corporations are. Is there any UN guidelines or any kind of demands around this? Because I'm assuming that this issue of batteries is not something which is hidden anymore. Uh, well, it is not maybe that as, as prevalent in just for, for me, I didn't know that much about it before I actually looked at your research, Seema. So I'm assuming that in UN there is some sort of resolution or, or, or minimum demands. If there are, please. I mean, yeah, as the UN essentially, as well as other intergovernmental bodies like the OECD, makes clear what the standard is for companies, right? So, I mean, at least since 2011, the corporate responsibility to respect human rights, you know, is an expectation, you know, of multinationals as well as smaller companies. The problem is, is that actually, um, you know, it's showing that, you know, companies are saying they're respecting human rights. I'm not saying that all companies don't respect human rights, but transparency is a key way and doing human rights due diligence, you know, what that and that spells out what that looks like, the steps companies should be taking on a proactive basis. The problem is, is that we're not seeing that 
you know. So for the cobalt work, for example, after we um, Amnesty International issued the first report in 2016, we did a follow-up report, you know, to over a year and a half later to see, well, how have these companies named in the first report changed their practices? And actually, a year and a half later, a majority had not. There had been very subtle changes made by some companies, you know, which which then in this ranking came out looking like big winners. But the truth is, none of them were actually disclosing the actual steps they were taking to identify, prevent and address specific human rights abuses. Like what were the abuses? What was being done to address it? In terms of regulation, what I would like to see is actually I don't want companies to produce a report saying there is no child labor in our supply chain. Because that, to me, is a lie. And what we want to see is, well, what steps have you taken to see if there's child labor? And then what that's what the law should be requiring the companies to do. But then if a company fails to address the abuse, so if there is child labor in their chain, if they fail to address that abuse, that should be sanctioned. That should be the focus. Because what we should be encouraging is proactive actions to actually be fixing the problem if they've already been benefiting from the abuse. Yeah, this, this is a similar um, uh, thing is, is happening in the UK, for example, with the UK Modern Slavery Act. We have a, a, a you know, it was a very cutting edge legislation uh, asking companies to disclose what are the efforts that they make to combat human rights uh, abuses in the supply chain, specifically modern slavery and human trafficking in their supply chain. And the first year, the response, many of the responses were, we have zero tolerance for slavery and human trafficking. There's no slavery and human trafficking in our supply chain. Well, <laughs> the answer to that is, well, then you haven't looked because if you haven't found modern slavery in your supply chain, that means A, you don't know what your supply chain is, B, you haven't looked properly because there is modern slavery in every supply chain, unfortunately, these days. Modern slavery, abuses, mm -hmm. exploitation, people taking advantage of other people for economic uh, purposes. So um, going back to your question regarding what are the UN standards, etc., the way that uh, the UN system works, uh, we have this uh, guidelines that we call soft law, which is guidelines that establish you know, the expectations of the international community towards states and towards corporations. And then these have been incorporated into national laws. So they are, we have advanced in a way in to the regulation of uh, um, this uh, that we call conflict minerals or you know the human rights abuses related minerals with in the US in the EU however this is in my opinion still uh, putting all the all the um, capacity to disclose whatever information companies think is uh, is appropriate in that in that remit without much uh, monitoring and enforcing uh, from the state. So three three pointers. Um, yes. And and this is what uh, the your answers are relaying into that corporates are big, uh, corporations, sorry, are big, so powerful, which means that, but we shouldn't put too much demand on the consumers. And hence your both work now personally feeling that, okay, we should maybe work towards changing the legislation. So I think it's a good circle right now over here that although we understand that personally we cannot just by you know making various different choices for our personal consumption can make a big change. We might, as you mentioned, uh, Seema, 
uh, if we inform people, people would put pressure. And then you as a facilitators can work through that pressure and actually uh, change the legislation. That means your personal journey, I mean, you are empathetic to maybe different human situations or environment. And then you, is this the way you entered into this field? Um, yes. You know, I would say it's the drive to address the injustice of it. You know, these multinationals, they are powerful actors. They are they are legal creations. I think that's a very important point to keep saying because, you know, it's not it's not about two people here. Powers are illegal. <laughs> multinationals are illegal creations. Yeah, they're an abstract entity. They, they are don't an abstract have their own personality making <laughs> entity. Yeah, but uh, and, run by people who take the decisions that Yes, and but there's also more to it by by an entity, an abstract entity. Yes, yes. So in my, I mean, I also think that um, I, you know, I think that you know, I was watching The Matrix last night, and I think this, the original Matrix, (laughs) you know, and this idea that we're all sort of we we're living in a pre-programmed, we're programmed, and you know we're we're living. We're predicted. We're following through with predictable actions and predictable predictable reactions, and nobody is rocking the boat. And sometimes I kept thinking about actually our broader society. And let's say we talk about here like supply chains, you know, and the issue about clean energy. You know, I think that actually we can do things differently. And I think if we start thinking outside the box, and I think for me that's part of why I want to do this work. I think that we need to start thinking outside the box. We've been trying for years. Um, as to how we can change the power dynamic, how we can name and shame companies to basically, so the issue, the it gets more exposed so that we can have the government action. We need investors to basically be taking more positions on this. I mean, in my view, an ethical battery is part of a just transition, you know, away from fossil fuels. We need to adjust. We need to move away from fossil fuels. That's for sure. You know, and I and I think we need to do this quickly. But we need all the actors, the right actors on board now to basically be like, yeah, this is what we should be doing. Yeah, we should be awarding the right types of behavior. And, and I, I think connecting with what uh, you said, Rasa, about, um, you know, the power of the consumer, not just to decide whether to buy or not. You know, I, I'm thinking whether to buy an electric car or not. And I'm like totally paralyzed in this particular moment, given all the information that I have, uh, because uh, very shamefully, I have a very polluting car at the moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I am I uh, I feel my share of responsibility over uh, driving this car mm-hmm. in a very polluted road, by the way. So but what I think well, uh, what you uh, said is very important, the, the way the consumer acts, not just in their consumer power, but demanding information, being informed, actually empowers the work of people like SEMA because it puts it in the agenda. It help. It, it has a, a, a public um, profile. Governments then become interested in funding it. International uh, funders become interested in funding, and there is a space for activists and for human rights um, uh, professionals to actually take on this topic, which is very difficult to work in niche uh, um, uh, research because, you know, you have to convince everyone that this is an important thing to put in the agenda. Then this happens to us as yeah. well. We we tend to like to work on niche things because you tend to feel like, oh, you know, I'm kind of like addressing this topic that nobody's talking about. Then it becomes more mainstream and you realize 
you're like, oh, now everybody's talking about ethical batteries. I'll go and move on and research something else. But um, but actually, you've made a massive contribution in terms of you put this into the debate, into the agenda beyond the specialized debate. Well, I, I won't take the full credit. <laughs> well, take <laughs> part of but, the credit. But what I will say is I was speaking at a meeting in California mm-hmm. uh, late last year Um Responsible Minerals Conference. So it's actually an industry conference. And I was on a panel and I was speaking about, um, you know, the ethical battery because, you know, industry had heard, gotten wind that, okay, Amnesty and Greenpeace and some of these organizations, you know, are starting to talk about Electronics Watch, starting to talk about this ethical battery. So they're like, well, let's get Seema on this panel and she can tell us what this is. So, you know, I said, you know, basically presented, well, throughout the life cycle of the battery, there should be no human rights environmental abuses. If there are, they should, you know, they should be addressed and kind of painted the, made the picture, which is not a complicated picture, actually. And then the lady, this one lady, and I won't say who she worked for, but it was industry, responded and she said, you know, I just want to respond to the Amnesty colleague because, you know, she just, first it was cobalt and then that they want, that they wanted us to address and then they came back saying, well, now lithium is an issue, <laughs> lithium mining in Chile and, you know, in Argentina. There could be issues here related to water. And OK, so now they want us to address that. And now she's telling us that she wants us to create an ethical battery. This is it's just too much. Yeah. And oh, that was she essentially wants us not to violate any human right. So basically, I sat, <laughs> I sat there and I said, it's as if. I've created the problem <laughs> yes. when actually industries created the problem yes. combined yeah. with poor and weak regulation. Yeah, and enforcement. And actually it's it's almost ironic and yet disturbing yeah. that that she had rearticulated as if I was pre- I was presenting I had created the problem. Yeah. I was articulating problems that already exist. Yeah. And the ethical battery is actually a solution, yeah. a solution you know, and a vision, a way to actually all of us come together, you know, with grit, with a law, with a regulation, hard with a hard line, basically saying, no, no more of this sort of unaccountable business around creating these batteries. This is how we're going to yeah. do it. Well, companies have become better at uh, at uh, dressing up these issues, but they still are um, uh, stuck in the 1970s sentence by Freeman of the uh, social responsibility of a company is to make profit. <laughs> and this is still, yeah. all these years later, the the underlying um, uh, way they, I think, still address these problems. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Seema, it's... I think we're going to explore even more. But lastly, I just want to know a few more details of your personal journey, maybe to end it with. But I think we're going to explore more further on that how, just if we think that how this abstract entity, which Olga, you just mentioned, uh, is existing in our society. And these agents, which you said, like individuals kind of speak as an agent on the behalf of the company. But but the the crazy part is, and that's what you will know, Harari say, and I'm assuming um, at some point, hundred podcasts later, we might be able to figure out even one aspect of this problem, which is that there are abstract bodies like religious ideologies, cults, although maybe there's not much difference between these two, uh, and other other aspects of these uh, com- multinational companies, which 
do not suffer so that's he he explains it in a way that this is a, a figment of reality which doesn't suffer but also drive a lot of suffering onto real individuals and that's a very um tricky problem we have in our society and but you are sitting there in the conference so if i'll i'll use a one metaphor i don't know if it work or not so you if you see a sea uh when you're standing on a rock which is pretty high let's see and that sea which you see has this uh uh turbulence and there is a lot of individuals in that and then in that turbulence you see some sort of a wave or a structure which is very abstract let's just make it look like a company you decided to now jump into this abstraction to maybe help few more people and maybe create ways to bring people out of that chaotic uh, turbulence which is going on in a sea it has an emotional too uh, to- toll on you it, as you are saying like they rephrase the term and created it as if you created the problem i would really like to know that how that personal journey of that emotion and decision uh, taking responsibility maybe you have to sometimes block certain aspects to protect from such uh such a intense procedure is anything around that would be really helpful to understand that how your personal journey in this field is working it's a loaded question i mean i thanks raza i mean i think just what drives me i don't really get afraid by the big multinationals including the ceos and i've been in many on many panels and many meetings where it's all industry and you know i know people are like oh this lady from amnesty oh this lady from global news but what drives me is it is if you're if you're actually involved and you go to you know you see what's happening in the drc you know and you say in other areas you know i've researched palm oil you go to plantations you see what what conditions are happening i've been to liberia you see you know there are massive issues with timber trading and timber exploitation and illegality around timber you know you see and these people and they are people that are suffering their rights are being abused they are not gaining in the profit sharing at any level and for me that is always what i come back to why i feel that actually i feel quite driven by this model of investigations like on the ground investigations and research because you see what's happening and that when you see it you can't then not take up the fight you know and i think that for these multinationals that either deny it or that just are um don't actually address it um just sugarcoat it that of course makes me angry you know and i think that we see this i mean i've researched certain industries extractives and certain companies but when you see it all around us it's it just it really enrages me that actually you know how the question in my mind is always how can we collectively raise our power you know we need to have more power to bring down or at least be equal to these almighty powerful multinationals which actually governments and laws have created yeah anger is a good motivator facts the truth and clarity is actually then the tools that we have so this is i guess the kind of features that we want to explore as well with our our other guests regarding other topics Brilliant. Okay, Sima. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to Let's talk. Let's bring him down. Yes, thank you listeners. Thank you so much. See you next time. Bye.